We are in 1 Samuel. We're going through the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, sometimes we take a break. We'll do Father's Day or Mother's Day message. The best thing I can do for you guys, you guys, uh, you dads today, is to preach expositorily through the Word of God. You're supposed to say amen. Okay, guys, come on. Page 271. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the back. Um, we got larger print ones, which is really good. Uh, you can see, so page 271. So let me dismiss the kids. In your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we are going to study together. Kids, you're dismissed for children's church. Half of them already left. They don't wait anymore. They're just leaving. <laughs> 1 Samuel 21. We're going to go through chapter 2, chapter 22, verse 5. Okay? That's our, our text. So let me bring everybody up to speed. Remember, Samuel, the book of Samuel is a book of transition. Uh, Israel is going from a theocracy, a people governed and ruled by God, to a monarchy, governed and ruled by a king. Saul is the first king of Israel, uh, the king that Israel wanted, if you remember. He was strong, he was handsome, he, he won Mr. Israel year after year. He's not the one that God would have for them, but the one they wanted. And therefore, in their rebellion, in their idolatry, he gave them, God gave them what they wanted. And now by the providential hand of God and his sovereign plans for Israel and the world, Saul is on his way out the door. God had enough. Saul has rejected God as the ultimate king over Israel, and now God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. In comes, as we've been noticing over the past couple of weeks, the national treasure of Israel, and his name is King David. King David will have some faults. King David will sin. King David will rebel in some ways like Saul, not completely, have a heart that is humble and willing to repent of his sins. That's the difference. Saul is a man after the flesh. David is a man after the spirit. But one thing we learn about the kings of Israel, even David, is that all of the kings of Israel were broken men. All of the kings of Israel were sinful men. They were rebellious men to some degree at some point, all but one. The king of kings, and his name is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the perfect one, the one who would never, ever rebel against his father. He would be persecuted as we see David was, yet Jesus alone will be able to die on a cross as a substitutionary atonement because he alone, he alone obeyed and fulfilled the law of God faultlessly. And as we come to chapter 21, Remember the past two chapters, Saul, King Saul's intention to put David to death has been ramped up. There have been numerous conspiracies, numerous attempts on his life. And last week in chapter 20, verse 8, we saw David reminding Jonathan of the covenant that they made together, that, that Jonathan made with David, chapter, uh, David made with Jonathan, chapter 20, verse 8. It says this, therefore, David talking, therefore, talking to Jonathan, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David saying to Jonathan, you, we made a covenant. You made a covenant with me. Remember that covenant. And a covenant involves firm promises and, and solemn commitments. Last week in chapter 20, again, verse 16, we find another formal covenant made. Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David. It, it is a covenant of friendship, a covenant of loving loyalty. And remember last week, all this was going on, all this covenant-making, covenant promises, covenant-reminding was going on as Jonathan was coming face-to-face with his father, King Saul, the reality of his father's intention to kill David. Remember, King Saul tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, with a spear. Jonathan finally got the point. Pardon the pun. David's life is in danger. My father wants to kill him, right? And so David hides in a field, you remember? Jonathan shoots an arrow, goes beyond David. No one knew that. That, that, was, the, that was code word for your life's in danger. The servant boy, he tells the servant boy, get the arrows behind David. And David realizes, and Jonathan, again, finally realizes that King Saul is trying to kill David. David is a man on the run. He's a man on the run. King Saul, though, is fighting the inevitable. You need to see this. King Saul is fighting the inevitable sovereign hand of God that has declared, without question, you 
will not be king forever. Your kingdom is torn from you. When God speaks, God's plans will be fulfilled. As we get into chapter 21, David is a refugee. He's a political refugee. He's a man without a country, a man on the run. This section of Samuel in the letter of Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel is what is known as David's wilderness experience over the next couple of chapters. And David now is in the wilderness. He's on the run. He's learning, right? He's learning. He's in the pressure cooker. Don't, don't we learn in the pressure cooker of life? Who wakes up and goes, Lord, put me in a real tight, sticky mess and squeeze me good till I learn my lesson? Nobody. That's who. Nobody. David is in that situation. God has brought him to that situation. He, he is, it's a painful time for David. He, he's separated from his wife. He's separated from the King Saul's service. He's separated from his beloved friend, Jonathan. He's on the run. It's a dangerous time. But a time in which the anointed of God, David, will not be killed. No matter what danger David will face, the Lord will provide and protect his anointed. It's a time of growth. A time of preparation for David. As he's learning and will become ruler over Israel. Three headings this morning, rather simple. Four real movements, but we're going to call it three today. David first is out of his resources. We're going to see David needing things. Next, David is out of his mind. Funny narrative, kind of crazy. We'll get there. David then is out of his cave. David finds himself in the cave and coming out with a band of brothers. So that's where we're at. So as we get into the first point here, uh, let, let me just remind you, I, I believe I mentioned this maybe last week or the week before. You can learn a lot about someone. You can learn a lot about someone by where they turn to, where they run to, where they go in time of trouble. When David was first on the run in chapter 19, you remember, he ran to Ramah. Why? Because that's where the prophet was. That's where the word of God was. And David went and sought the word of God, the prophet of God in Ramah. He was there getting spiritual nourishment, if you remember, where the prophets were prophesying when the hitmen showed up, right? And the king wanted to kill David, all trying to kill him. And then he flees from Ramah, and he goes where? To Gibeah. Why? Because he's seeking after Jonathan, his beloved friend, in which he made a covenant with, to seek intervention, to get some help from friends. The prophet of God, the friends of God. And now he's on the run again. He's in need of food. He's in need of weapons. He's in need of of shelter. All the things, all the resources that he had as the king's son-in-law in in the king's service. And in desperation, though, now, he goes to Ahimelech, the priest. There's a reason. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. And hear the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I charge you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. In other words, this isn't price chopper. But there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have, kept, have been kept from us. Always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave David the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of presence which is removed before the Lord, from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. David leaves Gibeah, goes about two miles, two and a half miles southwest, slightly toward north of Jerusalem. Nob has become the replacement for Shiloh. Shiloh, if you remember, is the place of worship, is the place where the tabernacle was. Nob has become that place. And if you're looking for spiritual help, if you're looking for a priest, an intercessory for you, where would you go? You would go to Nob. And that's exactly where David goes, where there's multiple priests. We find 85 of them we'll learn next week. David escapes, and he goes to the place of worship. 
David first escaped, went to the place where there's a prophet, then he went to the place where there are friends. Now he's in the place of the tabernacle. Ahimelech is the brother of Ahijah, the priest. Remember Ahijah? Ahijah, back in chapter 13 and 14, joined Saul, King Saul, the one that's trying to kill David. He joined him as his spiritual advisor. Ahijah, Ahimelech, brother, i got to get those names straight. If you're looking for one for a child, there you go. Um, he, is, he is Saul's spiritual advisor. I want you to see that, right? Both of these guys, Elijah, Ahijah and Ahimelech, are the grandsons of Eli. Remember him. And Ahimelech comes trembling as David approaches. David is coming alone. He is a commander of armies. He has usual royal bodyguards. And now he's coming into the camp, into Nob, alone. And the question that David has to figure out is, can Ahimelech be trusted? If he's the brother of Ahijah, who is with Saul, in allegiance with Saul, can he be trusted? Can he know everything? Can he be told what is going on? That's the question. So David, rather than telling him what's going on, keeps, keeps the purpose, the main purpose, for, his, for the reason why he's there, why he escaped, as a secret. He delivers this story. Look what it says. I'm on a, I'm on a covert operation, he says, right? I'm on a secret mission. No one knows. The king has sent me, and uh, I'm here because, but I can't tell you. Now, commentators differ, commentators differ on the story. Let me give you a couple of their interpretations. Some say that David is wise. Some saying that David is smart not to tell the king, whose brother is with Saul, what's going on. He doesn't deserve to know the truth, or as we know, he doesn't, can't handle the truth, right? So, so he's wise. David, David's smart not to say anything. Others would say that he's a bold-faced liar. David's just lying through his teeth making up a story because he's afraid, and he's just making stuff up as he goes. Others believe that David's telling Ahimelech the story because he doesn't want to implicate him. In other words, if you know I'm running from the king and the king finds out, which he's going to later on in the chapter, but if you know that and you're helping me and the king finds out your life is in danger, so I'm just going to not put you in danger. Yet, a couple of commentators, which I thought was interesting, you guys could talk about this in community group, others people are saying that David is actually telling the truth. The king he is referring to is the king of kings, God himself. And David's answer was a shrewd answer, a use of language, but an honest answer. If it was God the king, then David was telling the truth. It would not be out of character for David because he calls God, ultimately the sovereign God, his king in many of the Psalms. Yeah, I'm on a covert operation for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He doesn't have to tell him who the king he's talking about, and David maybe just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a COVID operation for the king, God himself. Remember, as you're studying historical narratives, if you notice the text, doesn't condemn, doesn't reward, doesn't recommend, nor does it justify David's conduct. It's simply reporting what took place. Remember that. So no matter what you think, he's a bold-faced liar, whatever you think, remember what I always like to say, before you judge him, try to relate, Right? With a price on your head, and the, according, you know, as far as it matters to David, the whole world is looking to kill you. A price on your head, the whole world's trying to kill you. Who do you, you don't know who to trust and not to trust. What would you say? Some of you have never been in a life-threatening situation, a real-life and death situation, and a gun pulled on you. I, I had. It's scary. Maybe you've never been in a situation heading into a hostile situation, not knowing whether you're going to live or die. Before we judge, let's relate. David's running for his life. He doesn't tell him exactly why he showed up, but he gives him the reason why and what he needs at the moment, the resources. Look what he says. He needs some provisions. He needs some resources. He tells Ahimelech he needs bread. And the priest says, he tells the priest, what do you have on hand? Literally, it means, what do you have under your control? The only thing available for David is to eat what was known as the holy bread. Look at verse 6. The bread of presence. Okay, that's important. The bread of presence was set out on, the, on a table in the tabernacle, in the holy place. The 12 there was 12 loaves representing 12 tribes with whom the Lord had entered into covenant with. And every Sabbath day they were replaced. 
normally eaten by the priest. The old bread was eaten by the priest. And the other new bread was placed out in the, in the table, in the bread of presence on this table in the holy place. And, and to David, he says to David, the king says to David, if you and your young men, who he's probably going to meet at that time, have kept themselves from women, then they can have the bread. In other words, if they were not ceremonially, if they were not, if they were not ceremonially clean, they were unfit. But if they were ceremonially clean, they could eat the holy food. And what the priest is doing at that moment, he's making a split decision. He sees David, he sees his need for nourishment, and he decides to give him the holy bread. Now, I mentioned this in the first service. When you think of bread, don't think of walking to the store. Like, you could live without bread. Some of you live without bread. You can't back then. Bread was sustenance. Bread was survival in the New Testament, in, in the Old Testament, back in that day. Bread is, bread is very, very important. It's your, it's your staple. It's what you eat. It's how you survive. And here the priest is making a decision. And, and he's showing us a principle that the law of ceremony is for the sake of man and not for the sake of God. It's for us. Jesus himself validated what, what, hap, what happened here with Ahimelech and David in Matthew and in Luke. In fact, Matthew 12. Religious leaders are, have known or have seen Jesus' disciples eating grain through a field on a Sabbath. And they're engaging what they would call industrial work. They're grinding the wheat, grinding the grain, and like that's work. I wish that's all we did, right? Just grain, just do some corn. But So they're like, listen, why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them in chapter 20, 12 uh, of Matthew, Jesus says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Jesus is pointing back to this incident. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, his disciples. Then he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See what Jesus is referring to this incident. And he does so, and he exonerates David, exonerates Ahimelech for doing nothing wrong. Not only that, but Jesus reminds the, the, the Israelites and the leaders of that day that Ahimelech on the Sabbath worked. He had to bake the bread. And bring the bread into the holy place and switch the bread out. It would be considered work according to them. And Jesus is saying on a day that if David can eat sacred bread, if, if the priest can change, make the bread and change the bread on the Sabbath day, surely the Lord, the king and the ruler of the world, can allow his disciples to eat grain. He's not obligated. He's not obligated to the silly rules of the, uh, of the, of the Pharisees concerning the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Anointed One. I'll reign and rule over, I'm going to reign and rule over the entire earth as king. And here we see Ahimelech, who is an Aaronic priest, having the authority, interpret the Torah guidelines, and giving food to those who need it. Again, it's, it's, it's consistent with the Torah, which is the five books of Moses, with the law, to provide David and his men means to sustain life without breaking the law. Let me explain. Suppose you leave here this morning, and you're on your way home. You're going down the street, you're going past your house, go right before your house, and you see a house engulfed in flames. The back of the house is burning. You jump out of your car, and you run up to the door, and it's locked. And you look in the window and there's someone laying down out cold, unconscious in the house. What do you do? You go up to the door and you kick the door in. Well, you just broke the law. Did you not? I mean, who, can you just break into somebody's house? No, you broke the law. But because of mercy, they're not going to persecute you. You want bread? You need to live? Okay, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see that? Now, look how beautiful this is, though. Ahimelech's holy bread becomes David's daily bread, right? Ahimelech's holy bread becomes David's daily bread. God is providing for David. 
And don't miss this point. The primary purpose of the table in the holy place where the bread of the presence was set, was, was laid. By the way, bread of presence. Presence is the word panim, meaning face. It is literally the bread of the face of God. It was a reminder, a perpetual reminder of the covenant that God had made with the Israelites. The bread of presence emphasized God's provision. He was the source of life. He was the sustenance to live. He not only gave them their daily bread, but he offers them, more importantly, eternal life. The second thing that that this table represents with the bread on there is intimacy between Israel and, 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 and God. In ancient times, even today, we share meals together. There's an intimacy, face-to-face, sharing a meal, breaking bread. It was a reminder of Israel perpetually that God was their God, that they were in intimate relationship with this God in the covenant as the bread represents the meal that they share. In other words, the intimacy that they share. What did David need? David needed to know the presence of God. David David needed to know that God will care for him. David needed to know in that time that there's an intimacy, a face-to-face relationship between him and his God. Sometimes when we are in that pressure cooker, that's what we need. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was at the tabernacle. His name was Doeg, the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then you have not here a spear or or a sword at hand, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you struck down, David, in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take that, take it. For there is none but that here, that's, that's all we got. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. And I find it interesting that this Doag is the chief, literally, of the herdsmen, literally a strong man or a mighty one, is a shepherd. Sort of suggesting that David was replaced by this guy as the shepherd boy, right? And he's an Edomite. Remember chapter 14, <laughs> Saul fought against the Edomites. And, and very likely he captured some and one of them becomes his Mighty man, his shepherd brought into his service. They're historical enemies of God. And after David gets some food, he's like, all right, give me some, something to fight with. Give me, give me a weapon. And although David took this sword, if you remember, a couple of chapters ago, from Goliath, after he struck him dead, remember, with the stone, he took the sword of Goliath and cut off Goliath's head. Somehow, some way, that sword wound up in the place of worship, in the tabernacle area, in the place where God's people were. And now David gladly accepts this sword. And just think for a moment, if you can, to walk in David's shoes. Getting that sword back. Knowing that that sword represented, knowing that God had showed up. Remember, it was not David that took out Goliath. He said, the Lord will give him to me. And David sees this sword remembering God's faithfulness. Remembering God's faithfulness, how he relied upon God and all the imagery that must have been flowing through his mind and the victory that he had over Goliath. And he says, there is none like it. There's no sword like that. Give it to me. One commentator said this, the priestly transfer to David of the sword speaks of the holy and mysterious transfer of royal power from Saul to David. Once David is installed as king in Jerusalem and the matter of his everlasting kingship revealed in the vision of Nathan, he'll get an everlasting kingdom. It is no accident, he says, that David prays to the Lord in words that recall the very sword of Goliath, even as they tie together the unique choice of David with the unique Lord, end quote. What he's saying is, when David is told by God that God is entering into a covenant with David, that he promises David, you will have the son, an eternal son will sit on an eternal throne, he will come from you. David prays in 2 Samuel 7 this, therefore, he says, you are great, O God, the Lord our God, for there is none like you. See that reference? And there is no God beside you. There's no, there's no weapon like this. There's no God like this. According to all that we have heard with our ears, he says. So, so the bread is nourishing David both physically and spiritually. And now he has the sword. 
A sword like no other sword. His presence, his victory. Just like the sword, it's just like God. There is no sword like it. David, out of his resources, he gets bread and he gets a sword. Next we see David out of his mind. Verse 10, love this. And David rose, King David, the beloved of Israel, rose and fled that day from Saul. He went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he charged his behavior, excuse me, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why, why are you bringing him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Rhetorical question, the answer is no, don't bring him to my house. David's flight from Saul to Gath, now to, uh, to, to, uh, to Nob, now to Gath, which is about 25 miles. He's 25 miles southwest of Nob, down the hills, coastal plain. Gath was definitely out of view of, of, of King Saul. He's far away from King Saul, but he's right in Gath. You remember what Gath is? Gath is the hometown of Goliath. Goliath comes from Gath. And where is David? In Gath. And what is he carrying? Goliath's sword. In enemy territory. It reminds me of the time when I went down to Quincy Market in Boston in the middle of the summer. And all my four daughters and me were wearing Yankee shirts. Enemy territory. I loved it. They were yelling at me, you're in the wrong city. I'm like, he's in enemy territory with the, the sword of their national treasure, Goliath. He's a desperate man. And when they recognize him, they start, they're like, is this not David? Isn't he, isn't he, look what it says, king of the land? I mean, they're recognizing his notoriety. They're recognizing his, his soon-to-be Kingship, maybe? Maybe they're seeing something here. Jonathan is starting to see it. Even Saul, we saw last week, I think, is looking that way. He knows the kingdom, but he's trying to fight against the kingdom. God himself already said he's going to be king. And now his enemies, is David not the king? And then it can't get any worse. It can. They break out into him. They're like, weren't they singing? Saul has struck down his thousand, and David is ten thousand. Isn't that the guy? And David's like, look what it says. He's much afraid, right? He's coming to Gath with the sword of the Goliath, of Goliath, and he attempts to, re- to remain incognito, and that goes south really quickly. And there's only one thing for him to do. Put those acting lessons his mother and father made him do into practice, and he makes believe he's out of his mind. Sometimes when we are filled with fear and doubts, we may not have spittle running down our beard, but oftentimes our conversations that we have, we don't even realize it, somewhat irrational. Because without faith and trust in God, we're going in our own irrational way. And David scribbles on the door, on the graffiti on the door, and who knows what he wrote, at the gate. Let's spit run down his mouth. He's acting like he's insane. And you know what? It works. The king says, like, we have enough crazy Philistines around here. Do we need, like, a Jew? Do we need an Israelite crazy man around here? I, I don't think so. This guy's vandaliz- he's got, you know, he's vandalizing the place. He's, he's demeaning himself and spittle running down his beer, which is sacred beers in those days. And you know what? Let's get rid of this guy. And th- there goes David down the road, slobbering as he goes, you know? It was crazy for him to be there in the first place. He fakes madness in the midst of his camp. He's a desperate man. Now, what is so interesting about this passage What is so interesting about this passage and this scene is that David, while he is there at Gath, acting like a madman, writes two psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. 
in the wake of his humiliation. Family, know where the Psalms fit in the history of Israel helps you to understand the Psalm. Just like in the book of Acts, when you know where Thessalonians and Romans and all that fits in the book of the historical book of Acts, it brings to light some things about the book. This brings light in some things about the Psalm. So David is in Gath. This is going on. And in Psalm 56, 3, he writes this. When I am afraid... I will put my trust in you. He's trusting in God. It seems like he's doing everything on his own effort, his own wisdom, his own strength. But the psalm says, I put my trust in you. David should not have feared man, but he did. We should not fear others, but we do. Yet the whole time he's faking madness before the king, he's communing with his God. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. He doesn't say, I'm the king of Israel. I'm the spiritual one. I'm the anointed of God. I will not be afraid. That's not what he says. He says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Fears happen. He's not denying it. He's just saying, when I am afraid, I am afraid. Then I will, I, I've got to trust in you. Verse 4 of Psalm 56, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can the flesh do to me? Then in verse 8 of chapter 56, going on in Gath, he writes this, chapter, uh, Psalm 56, verse 8. You, talking about God, you, O Lord, put my tears in a bottle. You put my tears in a bottle. What a tender perspective. Can you imagine someone you love, you deeply close with, whether a child, a grandchild, a hurting friend, a spouse, a close, a close sibling, and they're crying, they're hurting, and you wipe their tears, you kiss their tears away? That's the picture. God captures our tears. He, he is deeply, deeply cares about our hearts that are broken. Our tears, O oh Lord. You have put in a bottle. You know me. You care about me. That's what he's saying. Even in the midst of all this. Verse 9 of chapter uh, 56, the Psalm 56. He says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, David's saying, This I know, that God is for me. In the midst of this, this I know that God is for me. You know what that sounds like? God is for me. Romans 8. What shall we say about these things? If God is for me, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? That's what David's going through in this place. Psalm 34, just a couple of things. Another psalm he writes in this situation. He doesn't say, Lord, my great acting job, the Academy Award, thank you. He doesn't say that. Psalm 34, while at Gath. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Hmm. In my terrible circumstances, in the, in the hardships of my life, what is David learning? Trust the Lord. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, O ye saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Many, he says, are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Sound familiar? That's Psalm 34. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about when Jesus was crucified and they, and they were going to break his legs. They had to do to put people to death. They said he's already dead. And they shoved the spear in his side instead. Blood and water pour out. That prophecy that Jesus fulfilled on the cross is what David wrote during this time. It doesn't mean that we should act irrationally, okay? In order so that we learn to trust God, that long we learn to praise God in the midst of hardship. But it does say that we should never forget the mercy of God. We should never forget the providence of God that's given to us even in our foolishness. And you may ask yourself this morning, why is God putting me in such difficult circumstances? Maybe, maybe it's to bring you to the place of reliance upon him. Maybe you've been trusting in yourself. Maybe you've been trusting in things that 
will always fail rather than trusting in and leaning upon the Lord. I don't know what everything that's going on here, right? I mean, David's acting one way, spittle, writing on a door, you know, just acting crazy in one way. Yet it appears that David is also fixated upon learning and, and, and trusting in God. And you may think, well, that's odd. Not really. <laughs> Life is so complex. You find yourself doing one thing and trusting the Lord another and, and trying to work things out. I don't know about you, but that's my life. Life is complex. And what we can learn from this, I think the English military leader, political leader of the Commonwealth of England, long time ago, Oliver Cromwell, uh, Cromwell wrote, he wrote this. He said, trust in God and keep your gunpowder dry. <laughs> Do your part, trust in the Lord. Are you taking responsibility of the things that God has called you to do, that you need to do? God wants you to do that. But yet in the midst of this, are we trusting God in this? Are we, are we looking to him? Are we seeking his face? Are we seeking his wisdom in all of that? Are we, are we afraid of what others may say? Are we afraid of what man can do rather than the reverence, awe, and worship and greatness and majesty of our God? David out of his resources, David out of his mind, and now David is out of his cave. Verse 1 of chapter 22. David departs from there, Gath, they let him go a drooling way, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. You know, it's amazing how they hear this stuff, right? Like, there's no text message. Oh, did you see David? He's going, you know what I mean? They heard it. I don't know how they do that. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, David. And he became commander, a prince, depending on your translation, or or captain over them. And there were with him 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Okay, see what's going on? David makes his way back from Gath into the territory of, of Judah. He, he's, he's, he's in a place called Adullam, okay? Uh, we're not really sure where it is. But most people think it's about 10 miles east of Gath, toward Bethlehem, toward Jerusalem. And you can see he's near Bethlehem where he comes from. It appears that David now has found a place. He's hidden in a cave. He's safe. He's secluded. He's away from all that. Uh, up until now, he's pretty much basically alone. And now he's in Adullam, which means refuge. And a number of people start showing up to be with David. First, his family. They come from Bethlehem. Look what it says. Brothers and his fathers learn of his return. They're probably there because Saul, who tried to kill his own son, Saul, who's trying to kill David, is probably when they find their, David's parents, he probably wants to kill them too. The man's on a murderous rampage, and the parents are like, David, we're going to stay with you because it's very dangerous out there with Saul roaming the land. And then it says, look what it says. It says, other followers who are distressed, in debt, and those who are discontented or bitter in soul, ready for a change. And you got to wonder, I mean, if you read that, you got to read, doesn't that sound like the disciples of Jesus, right? His band of, of followers in distress, in debt, discontented. The word distress means stressed out, under pressure. Feel, sounds familiar? No visible means of any comfort. I'm stressed. What does Jesus say to the stressed? Come to me. All who, are, who, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and meek or lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then there's a debt. Those are in debt. Those who owe more than they could... They can, they can pay back. Those who have a debt that, that cannot and will not be forgiven. What does Jesus say? What does he say to the paraplegic, right? He says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Sins forgiven. All sin forgiven. I have that authority. If you have a debt, do you owe to God that you need forgiveness? Jesus offers forgiveness. Discontent is bitterness. 
Bitterness of soul. Some people have a bitter soul. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander put away from you with all malice. How? Be kind, tenderhearted, and what? Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness, the avenue of releasing bitterness from your soul. These are the people that, that form this band of, of brothers, this raw material that David is going to train. David is going to raise up as a royal army, a mighty man. People who will later say, I'll do anything for him. They're not ones that society wants. They're ones that can't integrate into the culture. And yet they see David and they say, you're the guy. You're the man. You understand. We're going to follow you. And I want you to notice the contrast. Remember, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel tells the people, if you want your king, you're going to get the king that you want. Not the king God wants for you, but your king, the king you want, what's he going to do to you? He's going to take. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your horses. He's going to take your chariot. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to take, 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 take. Not here. Not here. Those are tired of being taken Those who are broken, those who are discontent, those who are in debt are the ones who will form the new community. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul, right? Consider your calling, brother. The calling of God that opened your eyes to the glorious truths of the gospel. Consider your calling. None of you were, many of you were not wise according to the standards. Not many of you powerful, not many noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, what's the purpose in all that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is not that God doesn't rescue and save and deliver smart people, intellectual people, people with money, people with prestige, people with power. It's not that. But they have to humble themselves and not rely upon the things of the world. They must rely upon God. These are the people, these are the 400 people that joined David in the tomb, in the cave. And what's so interesting, write this down, family. He writes two more Psalms. Isn't that cool? He writes Psalm 57, you can go home and read it, and Psalm 142. In the midst of the cave, he writes two Psalms. What's going on in your heart, David? Listen to the music he wrote. Psalm 57, be merciful to me, O God. Show me mercy. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I'm in the cave. I see the storms and the armies until they pass by. I cry out to the Lord the Most High who fulfills his purpose for me. I'm here for a purpose. I don't understand it, but Lord, you do. That's what he's crying out. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah, respect, uh, reflect on what's being said. This is all going on. My soul is in the midst of lions. Uh, I lie down amid fiery beasts of the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows. Be exalted, O God. My heart is steadfast on you, O God. I sing and make melody. Awaken my glory. Awaken, O harp. This This is Psalm 57. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. I will praise you among the nations for your steadfast love is great. Glory be over the earth. And then David comes out of that cave, learning so much. The caves in those regions could hold hundreds of people, by the way. And he forms his new community. And look what it says in verse 3. He goes to Moab. He goes to Moab. That's a long distance. Moab, if you're looking at Israel, Philistines to the right, Moab all the way to the right, west and east. And Moab, if you remember, enemies of God too. But who's in Moab that David might know? Ruth, great-grandma, Naomi. David had roots in Moab. David had ancestry and goes there on a family trip to bring his mom and dad to make sure they're safe, and he goes to Moab. And he tells the king, watch over them, verse 3. Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Little did Naomi, little did Ruth know centuries earlier on the gold mine that that would take place during the suffering that they went through, especially Naomi, and how David now, the great-grandson, will take refuge there with his parents to make sure that they're okay. That's exactly what's going on. 
Look what he says. Let my father and mother stay with you, verse 3, till I know what God will do for me. Not till I find out what Saul is doing. Not what will, what will be my uh, circumstance, my happenstance, my fate. No. Not till I figure out why has this bad hand been dealt to me. No. He says, I will wait until I know what God will do. Right? He leaves there. It says he goes to, the, to a place of, 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 of a stronghold. And at time goes on, we see verse 5 to close. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Can't stay here in Moab. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departs and goes to the forest of Merith. Now, understand this. The word do not is a command. So what happens is, here's what's happening. The word of God by the prophet of God comes to David, and, and the prophet says to David, you can't stay here. In fact, Deuteronomy says you can't make friends with the Moabites. So you've got to obey. You, you've been here long enough. It's time to move on. You can't stay in Moab. You can't violate the Torah. You can't turn your, you know, you've you got to move on. We can't stay here. And David does what the Lord tells him to do, and he gets up and he goes. That's exactly what's happening here. And although, as we wrap up, listen, give me two more minutes, three more minutes. Although there's something undignified, really, of the ancestry of Christ, David himself, fearfully telling a story that may very well be untrue, he's drooling at the mouth, he's running and hiding in caves. We know, we know that their national treasure, David, actually did these things, who would put them in the book if this were not true? This teaches the truthfulness of Scripture, does it not? And, and all these stories, we go through this every week, point to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. David, King David, is a type of Christ in his suffering, in his humiliation, in his exile, in his office as the king, and his future exaltation as king, points to the king of kings. But remember this family, all the foreshadows in scripture, all the types of script, all the types of people in scripture, whether it's, whether it's a person, whether it's the tabernacle, whatever it is, never is completely, totally, exactly like what it represents. In other words, this is what I'm saying. David represents and foreshadows Jesus, but not in every single detail. I can't imagine Jesus going into a community right, and telling some false story, drooling at the mouth, running in a cave, right? He, David does, sh- does not show us Jesus in every aspect, in every behavior, in every conduct, in every character and motive. Not you, not me, not David, nobody will be that consistent, only Jesus. But we do have the gospel here. Number one, Jesus is Lord, listen, Jesus is the Lord of provision and the Lord of care. He, he gives us food. He gives us food. He gives food to the hungry. And his presence he gives to the lonely. The, the holy bread is kept in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was built in such a way to show the dwelling place of God. Who God is and where God dwells. David being fret, fed by this bread from heaven like manna of the Israelites in, in the wilderness. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven myself so that you can eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, Jesus says, that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Remember we said the bread of presence is the face of God. In Jesus, we have the very presence and intimacy of face to God. Face of God. There's intimacy with Christ. We meet God face to face. Number two, David's suffering. He's being persecuted. He's in enemy territory. Jesus said what? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. This story is very similar to Jesus who is a refugee. The Bible says that he came and yet his own knew him not. Jesus threatened. Jesus persecuted. Jesus on the run. David was rejected and hated. And then, Jesus, and then David was what? Accepted and made king. David suffered and then David reigned as king. Does that sound familiar? Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, found in human form, humbled himself. 
Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ, Lord, to the glory of Father. David put his trust in God in the end. And when Jesus died on the cross at the end, what did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see the gospel? Think about this lastly. Jesus, David's in the cave. Jesus had his own cave. Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. It was a dark place. It was a dark time for the disciples. They were lonely. They were broken. It doesn't mean that God gave up on them. He didn't forget their promises that he made, but their hopes were shattered. Their dreams were crushed when Jesus was crucified. He lay in his cave in the tomb for three days. The view from the cave was pretty bleak. But like David who came up out of the grave, out of the cave, I should say, and with his band of followers, three days later, Jesus Christ himself, victorious, comes out of the tomb, rising from the dead, victorious over sin, death, the grave. And let me tell you, family, if you belong to Jesus this morning, if you're a child of God this morning, you know what? You rose too. You rose too. Romans 6 tells us, do you not know all of us that have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, we shall also be united with him in his resurrection. Listen, I don't know what you're going on in your life today, but let me ask you, are you willing to seek the face of God? Are you willing to seek the presence of God? Are you willing to seek the word of God? Are, are, are you in a circumstance but leaning on your own wisdom? I would say, seek the wisdom of God. Seek the word of God. Seek the face of God. Seek the gospel. Because in the gospel, there's no need to be afraid. In the gospel that tells us that Jesus dies an atoning death and that in the gospel he's placed into a cave, into a tomb. And we know because Jesus rose from the dead, listen, nothing in all creation, neither height nor death, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that includes every single thing you and I might be afraid of this morning. So family, that's the message preached. The response is simple, trust God. Let's trust the Lord. Let's take a step and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I know that you're sovereign, you're good. I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. But in my fear, I'll trust you. In my fear, I'll trust you. Your your presence, your love, your care, your provision is for me in the gospel. Father, help us to see not only your provision for David, but your provision for us, that Jesus was sent on our behalf. He dies a brutal death, a death we should have died, lived a life we could never live, and then offers himself to us as the bread of life. So, Father, we pray that no matter what we are going through, no matter what we are in the midst of, Lord, help us to trust you. It is in the gospel that we know that you are our God, that we are reconciled to you, that we are yours eternally. And Lord, there is nothing, no nothing in all creation that can, that can pluck us out of your hand, Lord. You are good to your people. You love and you have mercy toward your people. And you are our heavenly Father who cares and loves his children. So help us to respond in a way that increases our faith, increases our trust in you, so that you get all the glory in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.